And if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, we are just getting started in this book. We're going to systematically walk through it. We are in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. And I want to make sure you're thinking about these two questions. Who is Jesus and what is his ministry today? You know, your ability to answer this question, these two questions, will actually have a great degree of influence on your life. And there has been recent research that now tells us we are in a state of significant confusion. In fact, there are so many people that are actually misguided about who Jesus really is and what he's accomplishing today, and research is now backing this up. So every two years, uh, the Legionnaire Ministry and Lifeway, they try to take the temperature, uh, the theological temperature of Americans, and specifically evangelicals, and what they're finding is deeply concerning. So this is from the 2022, so not very far back. Um, This is what they found, that there is all sorts of confusion as to who Christ is, what the church is, what sin is, and what God is actually doing even at this present time. Now, if you're like saying evangelical, heard the term, I don't really know what it means. Let me just tell you how it's defined. Uh, If you believe that the Bible is the highest authority for someone to believe, um, if you, second of all, you believe it's important for non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, or that Christ's death on the cross is the only sufficient sacrifice to remove the penalty of sin, and that those who trust in Christ alone receive the free gift of salvation. If you believe that, you are, by this definition, an evangelical. And I would say probably most of you here are like, I believe that. This is what's so shocking. Because the survey finds that you may say you believe those things, but you are actually believing things that are contrary to the gospel and the word of God. So, for instance, they found that 65% of evangelicals agreed that everyone is born innocent, meaning they don't think that there is any original sin. And hence, you won't really actually even need a savior. They also found that 56% of evangelicals agreed with the idea that God accepts worship from all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which is directly in contrast to what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then perhaps the most shocking result from their survey regards, is in regards to Jesus Christ and his divinity. The statement was given, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Ready for this? 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. In fact, that's up 13% that it was two years ago. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, but you identify as Christian, that is identifying in name only. You are not an actual follower and believer of Jesus as Lord and God because you're denying his very person. And there's just this widespread confusion. And what is needed is clarity. To who Jesus really is and what he's doing, and that's why we are in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the unveiling. Do you want to know who Jesus really is and what he's currently doing? Then you're going to want to pay very close attention to this book, specifically what we're looking at today in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that Jesus reveals his will 
in his written word. So take a look, verse 9, chapter 1. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here is the third time already in the book of Revelation that John identifies himself. This is John the Apostle, the last living apostle, because all of the other apostles have all now died a martyr's death. Those who laid the foundation of the church, these were handpicked, appointed, sent ones from Jesus. And uh, what took place with John? John, James, and Peter were part of the inner three. They had very close relationship with Jesus. In fact, God used John in very significant ways to write the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In his later years, John was the pastor at the church of Ephesus and served on a, on a ministry team there. But notice how he identifies. He says, I am your brother. We're in this together. I am a fellow partaker in the tribulation. And when he's talking about the tribulation, let me help you understand what had been taking place in the Roman Empire. So when Jesus Christ arrives in this earth and he begins his three-year ministry about age 30, he, he really is just like, like revolutionizes the area of Israel because people are drawn to him. He's doing miracles. He has wisdom. And there are people that are saying that this is indeed the promised Messiah. And then, according to all the promises of Scripture, there has to be one who will take the penalty of our sin. And Jesus then dies on a cross, this perfect sacrificial lamb. He dies, and three days later, he rises from the dead. And those who saw him, in fact, he made multiple appearances over a 40-day period, they begin proclaiming that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the only way to truly know God, to have forgiveness. He is the fulfillment, and he is God by virtue of his resurrection. And so they're proclaiming a gospel of turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He is the living Lord. Well, I want you to know the Jewish leaders were really upset with a message like that because they did not want Jesus to be their Messiah. In fact, they were very involved in getting him killed. But then there were also Gentile Roman authorities and although they didn't really understand, like, okay, so are you a sect of Judaism? Who are these Christians? Uh, when, it, when things got complicated, they could start clamping down on Christians. Because, like, hey, you're kind of disturbing the peace. We believe in lots of different gods. This idea that Jesus is the only way, that's not working so well in the Roman Empire. So much so that by the time we get to Nero, the Roman emperor, in the 60s, you remember, he burns down Rome because he wants to build Rome. And, and according to his vision, he needed someone to pin it on. And so who did he do, use? Christians. In fact, it was, it was brutal. He had them fed to wild dogs. He used their bodies while they were alive, dipped them in tar, used them as torches for his garden parties. And then things eventually did kind of subside, but then there became more and more resentment toward these Christians, not only amongst Jews, but it really capitalized when you get to um, the 90s, actually getting started about AD 81 with an emperor Domitian. And Domitian took it upon himself to be identified as Lord and God. And I want you to know that was a huge problem for Christians because they know that, you know, the fact that you are really crazy to actually even think that you are Lord and God, Domitian, well, we want you to know we can't 
submit to that. Nor can we call you Lord and God because we actually know who he is. And you're not it. And we worship him and we follow him. When Christians would not bow down to Domitian, he really uh, cranked up the pressure and the persecution. And one of the things that he did is he took the last remaining apostle, John, who's now in his late 80s, perhaps even early 90s, and he sends him to exile to this island of Patmos. Do you see that? In fact, that's where he is. And this is what the Romans would do. When they had someone that was very influential, and yet they wanted to kind of get rid of him, they would take these influential prisoners and send them to these like prison islands. And this was what Patmos is. It was the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. And it's small. It's like six miles wide, 10 miles long. And what they would do is they take these prisoners there and they would have them mine. They lived in very difficult conditions, didn't have enough clothing, not enough food, food, stuffed on the ground. And that's where they'd keep them. And the apostle John is there because why? Because of the, you see that verse nine? Because of the word of God. He actually believes that the Bible, as God is giving revelation, is from God. And he will not compromise on it. And furthermore, he's also there because of the testimony of Jesus. He publicly identifies with Christ. You see, that's what God is doing. He is shining his light through his people, those who are walking according to his word and are unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of identifying with Jesus. I mean, think about it in your life. Does anybody know that you're a Christian besides the folks here at church? Does anybody know? Do you identify with the word of God Like this, his word, is it your guide in life? And do you identify with the testimony of Jesus? Well, I want you to know, John says, for all of us who are in God's kingdom, we who have been redeemed by Christ, who know him as Savior and Lord, he says, I'm a fellow partaker of these kind of sufferings. I am on the island of Patmos. And it was about AD 95 that John is hauled over uh, to not very far from Ephesus, to be in on this island. And it was on this island that all of a sudden he hears something. In fact, verse 10 points this out. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So here he is on an island. Um, He hears this extremely loud voice. Anytime you see in the book of Revelation a loud voice or a loud sound, it's indicating that God is doing something powerful and that you must pay attention to it. He says, I was in the spirit. This means not only is he just walking in the spirit, but he was going to have a unique event in which the spirit of God is going to allow him to see the future. It is unique. It's very rare, but there are other instances. Ezekiel and Paul also, and Peter, had experiences like this in which God, in a very supernatural way, through his spirit, allowed them to see, to experience things that he wanted them to do. But it was very unique and very rare. And John says, I had one of these surreal experiences that only God could orchestrate, and he did so according to his spirit. And he said, I'm on the Lord, it was on the Lord's day. So Jesus, he rose from the grave on the third day, that first day, a Sunday. And That is why Christians, starting all the way back very early on, identified Sunday as the Lord's Day, the day of worship. Before that, it had been Saturday as Jews, but now followers of Jesus 
Sunday became the Lord's Day. So he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when I heard behind me this loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And so he hears this, verse 11, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So here he hears these words, this powerful voice, like you see there. It's like the sound of a trumpet. He says, I want you to write what you see, and I want you to send it. And then he names seven churches. Now, these are actual churches. These cities existed. These were actual churches. Uh, They actually all fit like in a 50-square-mile area. Each one of them was a part of a Roman postal district. In fact, here's a map of what that actually looks like. Uh, You can see that. So there's the island of Patmos, not so far away from Ephesus, where John had been a pastor. He's exiled on that island for about a year and a half when Domitian is actually killed. Uh, He is actually um, killed by his own court, Uh, John then goes from Patmos back to Ephesus where he lives out the rest of his life, uh, just reminding people and teaching the word to love one another and to love the Lord. And you see those seven churches. You can kind of go clockwise, and there's going to be seven letters that are going to be given to those churches. Now, the Lord shepherds his people through his scriptures. That has always been the case. God leads, guides, corrects his people through his written word. You see, like we see this like in the book of 2 Timothy where there's this, this strong emphasis to show you the power of the word. It's the written word that reveals Christ for our salvation. Remember chapter 3, verse 15? It says this, And that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation by faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see, the word of God shows us how we've missed the mark, our sinfulness, our need for a savior, who God is, and the loveliness of Christ. And it's through the word and the working of the spirit that we who are sinners are drawn to trust in Jesus. But God uses his written word. Furthermore, it's the written word that develops our sanctification. We who know Jesus, who are trusting him, God wants us to grow, develop, mature, to be fully set apart to him. And that's what you see, like in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says what? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that tells us that we have one source for our proclamation. The written word is to be the source of our proclamation. What does God want his people to know, to be taught, To hear, he wants his word preached. And actually, the very next verses, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, that's what you find. He writes, Paul writes this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, what? Preach the word. I want you to be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see, God wants his word read, studied, taught. Why? 
Because God shepherds his people through his word. Remember what we saw last week? Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. What does it say? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed. Has the idea of keeping, treasuring, obeying the things which, you, which are written in it. For the time is near. Who is Jesus? And what is his ministry today? Well, I want you to see this. Jesus reveals his will in his written word. But I also want you to take special note of verses 12 through 20, because here we see that Jesus reigns eternally as the sovereign Lord. And what we're about to see is the present work of Jesus Christ. You probably have ideas of of what you think Jesus is like. Chances are it's rarely informed by what you're about to see now. And that's really part of the crisis. Because if you want to know who Jesus is and what his present ministry is, you absolutely need to lock in, beginning in verse 12. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is at the epicenter of his churches. He is at the center point. So verse 12, John says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he turns around to hear this voice, and the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. And you're like, okay, so what's going on with that? Well, actually in verse 20, he actually tells us that these seven golden lampstands, these are the seven churches. In fact, the seven churches that he just referenced in verse 11. Gold, the very finest of all precious metals. It tells us that these churches... They are precious to God. Every church that truly belongs to Jesus Christ, his churches, I want you to know they're absolutely precious. And where is he? Take a look at verse 30 and in verse 13. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Here, all of a sudden, he sees one like the Son of Man. This is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where you get this picture, this vision of Messiah reigning. And he's referred to as the Son of Man. And notice, where is Jesus? And by the way, 81 different times in the gospel accounts, that's how Jesus refers to himself, Son of Man. It was a title of deity, but also spoke of his, the fullness of his humanity. And where is Jesus? Why, he's right in the midst of his churches. Do you see that? Verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands. He sees this one, and he is seeing Jesus. But it's not like he remembers seeing Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. Because remember, John was with him when they were, when Jesus was giving all this wisdom, preaching these messages, doing these miracles. John was there when Jesus is killed on a cross. Remember that? In fact, John is there with Mary. And remember, Jesus on the cross tells John, listen, I want you to take care of my mother. And John was there when Jesus rose from the dead and saw him on multiple occasions. But I want you to know that now when he sees Jesus, 
This is different than every single time that John saw Jesus except for one. Do you remember it? Do you remember there was a time where Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up on top of a mountain, and Jesus' appearance was completely changed. And Peter, James, and John were absolutely stunned in awe, and Jesus' face was shining. He was like, he was glowing. His garments himself were like whiter than any launderer could make, according to their statements. And what was going on is that God the Father was giving just a glimpse to these three of Jesus in his glory. And all of a sudden, John's mind would be flooded back to about 60 years ago when he saw Jesus like this. And where is Jesus? He's in the midst of his churches. That's where he is. He deeply cares. He's concerned. He's involved. These are his churches, and he's ministering in their midst. Something else that you need to see about this, that Jesus is the embodiment of deity. If you want to see what Jesus is doing and how he is reigning as sovereign Lord, look actually at how he is the embodiment of deity. Look at verse 13. Here he is in the middle of the lampstands, and I saw one like the Son of Man. He is, first of all, he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. Do you remember Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And here the first thing he sees is he's clothed in a robe. So he has a body. And a robe would be worn by royalty, but it would also be worn by a high priest. And the high priest of of Israel, he would be known not only by this robe, but by also a sash that goes across his body. And notice the next thing he points out here, he says, not only did he have a robe touching his feet, but girded across his chest with a golden sash. And so here he sees Jesus. And Jesus is, yes, prophet. He is king, an eternal king. But he is also the high priest. The book of Hebrews Hebrews, really makes this emphasis that Jesus is our high priest and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is the one who is deeply compassionate and cares about his people. And that's what John sees. He sees Jesus in the midst. Do you know what Jesus, by the way, is doing at this very present time? You may have not have thought of this. But like it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? Who also intercedes for us. That's what Jesus is doing as our high priest. He's praying for you and me. He's praying that we would have faith, that we would trust him, that we would know his love, that we would walk according to his ways. He's addressing issues in our heart, and he's bringing these requests before the Lord for faith, for courage, for strength, for love, the ability to persevere, to deal with the difficulties, to walk through the tribulation. And that's what Jesus is doing. And John sees this. There he is. And you see that in verse 13. You know, I find this. It is really helpful for me to remember who Jesus is and what he's doing and to rely on that. There are times where I'm like, I have no idea how this is going to work out. This is deeply troubling to me. I, it, it's grievous. It affects me. I, I don't know exactly what to even do about this. But then to think about Jesus and just to take it to him and say, Lord, I need you. And he's praying. 
that I would experience his strength, his joy, his love. It's his ministry. Why? It's a manifestation of his deity. And then look at verse 14. He goes on with this description. And he, uh, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool. Here again is just another parallel description where Jesus Christ is taking on the exact same imagery that is given about God and the characteristics that he has, like you see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And it speaks of his purity and his holiness. And furthermore, not only is it like snow, but his eyes were like a flame of fire. It's like he has this blazing penetrating gaze. And you see the symbolic imagery here. These symbols are given for us to have a better understanding and a picture of the depth of the deity of Jesus. And his eyes literally see through and see into everything. That tells us that even at this very moment, God actually knows what's really going on in our heart. There is nothing that is hidden from him. Don't think like, well, it's dark, no one can see, or I've closed the door and everything's fine and no one will know about any of this. I want you to know God sees right through that. He sees right into your heart. He knows the real issues. He knows the needs. He's praying on our behalf. And we're getting a picture and an understanding of the immensity of the deity of Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, take a look at this verse 15. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? Feet. Why is this emphasis on feet and and burning bronze? Well, and you may have picked this up. uh, If you've ever like kind of look look at ancient artwork, especially of kings, they are always seated on a throne, and the people are underneath their feet. And that is because when a king was pronouncing judgment, those who were being judged were always at the feet of the king. And this imagery of this bronished, uh, burning like fire of bronze feet is to speak of the fact that Jesus is not only the judge and the king, but he is actively doing that. The judgment is heated up. Things are happening. He's evaluating, assessing, and he is addressing. He is casting judgment, and he's doing so in the midst of his churches. He is going to come back, reign, and will be the judge of the world, but he's starting first with his own people, with his churches. And so you actually see a picture of that. And furthermore, he hears the voice, but this time it's changed. He says, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Here he's speaking of the fact, like now he hears the voice, but it's like the waves of a storm crashing on the island, that rock island of Patmos. I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean when it's storming and to hear the crashing waves like on the Oregon coast, but it is powerful. It's so loud It's like all-encompassing. That is the voice. It's the voice of God. And you remember, do you remember when John was at the Mount of Transfiguration? He heard a voice. He heard the voice of God the Father. And do you remember what the Father said? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's it. I want you to heed. I want you to follow. I want you to hear. Listen to him. And once again, John has this experience 
And he hears this voice. And then notice the imagery continues in verse 16 as we see his deity. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And those seven stars, again, in verse 20, tells us that these are the seven messengers. These are like the pastors, the lead elders. And he holds these stars, speaking the fact that he's in control. They are his possession. They are his churches. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. So not a literal sword coming out of his mouth, but his word is like a sword, and it actually pierces to the very issue. It removes all distraction. He has absolute, total clarity. He is the definition of truth. He knows what's going on in each heart, and he gives his word. You see the power of the word, And then furthermore, notice the kind of culminating feature. And his face, verse 16, was like the sun shining in its strength. It's exactly what John saw when he saw Jesus at that transfiguration. Face shining, brilliant, bright, deity in full humanity. And he sees it. You see, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. God sanctifies us in his truth. And you see Jesus for who he is, and that changes how you approach his book and how you live your life. And Jesus is the embodiment of deity. And that's exactly what John is seeing here. And then notice something else. And this is, this is so powerful. If you want to see how Jesus is reigning eternally as sovereign Lord, this is actually one of the most touching scenes that you're going to encounter. How do you respond When you truly see Jesus for who he is, not a figment of your imagination, not all the make-believe stuff that is out there, but Jesus as he really is, how do you respond? It'll look just like John in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You know, there's some boastful claims of folks that are like, yeah, I went to heaven and I saw Jesus and we did these sort of things and there was bubbles and it was all kind of fun and laughing and games. And I want you to know, when you and I encounter Jesus, we're going to be flat on our face, down. We will be overwhelmed by not only our own sinfulness, but the glory of his deity. And I want the different occasions that people saw the living God That is exactly what happened. I'll give you some examples of it. Like Moses, when he encountered God at the burning bush, he took off his sandals and he covered his face. Isaiah, when he encounters the living God, he says what? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Um, Peter, he falls on his face. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Remember in the storm and the boat? Go away from me, Lord. I know who you are. I'm a sinful man. Paul fell to the ground. When you see God for who he really is, you know what happens? You have great humility, and it leads to worship. You know, there's some folks that say, you know, when I get to heaven, there's a few things that God needs to tell me. I've got some questions for him, and he's going to tell me. I want you to know nothing of the sort will happen. When we encounter the living Lord, we're going to be face down. But notice that's exactly where John is. But look at this. This is so touching, so powerful. Verse 17, And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. Can't you see it? Jesus places his hand on John. But as he does, remember that rope he's wearing? That rope would move forward, and there would be the piercing of his hand. You know, this is exactly, by the way, what happened at the transfiguration. Remember when they were all down on the ground? Jesus touched them. You see, Jesus is the encourager of his people. He loves them immensely, and he is encouraging them. He's doing just that. He puts his hand on John. And notice what he says. He says the exact same thing, by the way, that he said at the transfiguration. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I am the Lord. Do not be afraid because I've got you and I love you. You see, this very one who is the absolute authority is the everlasting encourager. This is Jesus. And Jesus, I want you to see something else as we look at verses 17 through 20. He is the self-existent source of eternal life and truth. Take a look, beginning in verse 17. Uh, Excuse me, in verse 18. He says, first of all, I am the first and the last at the end of verse 17, which is a title used of God in Isaiah several times. Then he also says, and I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. It literally said, Jesus says, I became dead. So I want you to grasp this, because we're seeing Jesus as he really is. God, by definition, cannot die, right? God cannot be killed because he's self-existent. He has no beginning, no end. He is the self-existent one. But God took on humanity, the incarnation, the eternal son of God enters into humanity so that he can not only live a perfect life, but so that he can die a perfect death. That is the only way God's just wrath against sin could be ever satisfied. And Jesus did it. But then he rose again. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You see that? I am the living one. I, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And notice as he speaks of this, he also says this, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Death speaks of the condition. Hades speaks of the place. And Jesus says, I've got the keys, saying, I am the one who has the authority. Whoever has the keys can open, lock, close it, right? And Jesus says, I have the authority of death and of Hades. Do you see his deity on display? I want you to know, this was, this is Jesus. He is the source of eternal life, and he is also the source of eternal truth. And in light of that, he says, verse 19, do this. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Jesus tells John, I want you to write again. In fact, he gives you an outline of the entire book of Revelation. He says, I want you to write of the things you have seen. That speaks of the past. That is what recorded here in Revelation chapter 1. 
Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation speak of the present, the things which are. And you'll have these seven letters addressing seven churches, but really have implication for churches everywhere because they all end with the same statement, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then chapters 4 through the end of the book, 22, you have the future, the things which will take place. And I've given you uh, in your study guide just revelation at a glance. This is just my breakdown of the book of Revelation so you can see how this outline uh, comes to fruition in the book of Revelation. And so John begins to write like a reporter in the midst of a historic event, recording carefully, and Jesus gives some insight as to some of the symbols. And we've referenced this already, but look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he says, these are the lampstands, they are the the they are the churches, and the stars, why they are the angels. The Greek word is angelos, and it's always used of either a heavenly messenger, like we traditionally think of angels, or a earthly messenger. And since we know there are no angels in charge of churches, this is clearly speaking of those who are like a key pastor or a lead elder who are going to receive these letters. And that's what he says. I, that's who they are. And I want you to write and make sure they have these letters. You see what's going on here at the very beginning of this book? It's what the church, you and I, what we need today. We need a clear vision of who Jesus is. is. He is high and he's lifted up. He is indeed the Lord of blessing, but he is also the Lord who is judge. And he's going to judge the world, but you know where he's starting first? With his own people. To address the church before he addresses the world. And he is coming back. And the written word reveals Jesus reigning as sovereign Lord. And so who is Jesus? He is the the king, the almighty. You know, have you perhaps, you know, adopted some sort of like mild-mannered Jesus, kind of user-friendly Jesus that just, this fits in with what I want? Let the word of God shape your understanding of who he is. You need not fear even the most difficult circumstances because he's the Lord God who's in control. And furthermore, The more that we see Jesus at work in his churches, the deeper our devotion and the quicker our response in obedience. And that's what God intends, for his people to hold him with a holy reverence, to trust him with their lives, to follow his word, and to know that he's in charge. He is Lord, he is great, and he is good. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your book, the book of Revelation. For someone who is here today who's never truly trusted you, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. God, I see you for who you are. And I'm trusting Jesus to be my Lord and Savior right now. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, may we lift you up with a holy reverence. May we trust you with our lives, worship you from the heart to rest in the fact that you are the one who loves us and you've cleansed us with your blood. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we um, reflect on that word?
as we worship him. Whom shall I fear? And uh, which relates back to that verse 17, where he, um, he placed his right hand on, it says he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. Keep that in mind. It makes it a lot easier to take uh, whatever next steps we, we need to be taking. darkness fills the night it cannot hide the light whom shall I fear you crush the enemy underneath my feet you are my sword and shield though troubles lean